This is Evermore Poe, the turbulent youth of Edgar Allan Poe. Chapter 37 A letter arrived for Eddie. It was from his older brother Henry, who had indeed gone to sea. To my dearest little brother Edgar, I hope this letter finds you well. Unfortunately, I cannot say the same for myself. To paraphrase Shakespeare, tomorrow you may find me a grave man. Oh, but I jest, little brother. I blame the laudanum. You see, Brud, I am writing to you from a hospital bed on Craney Island with a terrible case of the yellow fever that I picked up whilst on my travels across the South Pacific. When I first joined the Navy, I had hoped for a great adventure and to pick up a tattoo or an earring or perhaps even my manhood in exotic places like the West Indies or the Azores. All I seem to have gained is an intimate knowledge of scurvy and this dreaded yellow fever. Oh, it isn't so bad. My nurse is really quite pretty, actually. Unless, of course, that's the laudanum talking. But I do have a lovely view outside of my window where I can watch the lighthouse all day and all night long. Thinking better of it, perhaps that's what's keeping me up each night. I'm bound to go berserk. Damn the lighthouse. Eddie, in anticipation of your question, no, brother, you may not come visit me. Despite Craney Island being only a short ride from Richmond, I am not the only man here with the fever. In fact, most of my shipmates have become my hospital mates as well. Sometimes I regret joining the crew of the USS Macedonian altogether. Our grandfather made life at sea sound so exciting. Truth be told, it's hell. If the ocean or some other terrible thing doesn't kill you first, the boredom just might. These days, Captain Downs doesn't have me do much beyond counting inventory from official government privateering. You should see some of this cash. It's got to be worth a fortune. You'd think we might get a bonus once in a while, as I suspect the good captain is secretly taking one for himself. Perhaps I shouldn't complain. The last time I went ashore on an adventure, I left with seven men and returned with four. More on that in the enclosed letter. I have learned many a myth and lore from the Southern Hemisphere, much of which, dear brother, is right up your gothic, gruesome, gore-infested horror alley. As I mustn't leave with all doom and gloom, I am, after all, not you, Eddie, I will share some good news. It appears that we have a new baby cousin in Baltimore. Her name is Virginia, and I understand she is quite precious. God willing, we will all have a chance to meet her before she grows up. Again, with the humor. Yours affectionately, Henry L. Poe. Oh, postscript, please destroy this letter immediately. I cannot afford to have Captain Downs dock my pay any further. He's been on a real spree lately. Be well, my little brother. Be well. Eddie turned the page and found a journal entry from his brother marked July 11, 1822. He began to read. Aboard the USS Macedonian off the coast of Venezuela. After many months at sea, we have finally returned from our adventures in the Southern Hemisphere, where we encountered a land of fertility, treasure, beauty, and danger. Along the way, our crew has claimed to see mermaids, sea monsters, and even the Flying Dutchman. Indeed, rounding Cape Horn was worrisome even for the toughest of us, but the real problem did not begin until we entered the port of Caleo in Peru in May. There, my mates and I were given leave to enjoy ourselves in the local pubs, but only with an order to crimp a new crew member or two. Oh yes, that terrible deed of kidnapping or shanghaiing an unwitting sailor is still alive and well, although politicians back home would say otherwise. 
However, we are not in America at present, and so the laws do not apply. One of our new recruits is a native from the Tuni tribe, and another a Spaniard by the name of Barbares, who were both present during the most harrowing of our adventures. My mates and I witnessed many a peculiar thing in the Kaleo marketplace, which I have come to believe was a foreshadowing of our misfortune. There were shrunken human heads for sale, one of which looked remarkably like our Uncle George, next to a woman who was busy making a potion by placing a blue frog in a stone mortar and smashing it with a crude pestle. As we walked these streets, a shaman pointed at us and shouted, Karayiba, Karayiba, as we passed. We were told this meant white man or foreigner. Unfortunately, we learned later, Karayiba also means ghost or spirit of the dead. We left Peru and made for Terra del Fuego on our return trip home. We had successfully rounded the horn and were celebrating that perilous feat with a whiskey and a cigar when all of a sudden we spotted a ship on the horizon. At least we thought it was a ship. As the fog lifted, we all saw it, or imagined we did, a vessel standing under a press of a sail in red a la glow, looking as though she was floating above the water instead of on it. We ran to the rails to get a better look, but the fog shifted again, covering her entirely. When it shifted once more, there was no sign of a ship in our vicinity at all. So worried were we that we had spotted the Dutchman, and knowing what befalls many a sailor who do, we quickly hoisted the sails and left Terra del Fuego in our wake. We dropped anchor in Montevideo, but I did not go ashore this time. I hope to do so one day, as that city looks quite civilized and European in nature. A few nights later, we found ourselves along the coast of Venezuela, where the Amazon spills into the Atlantic. Being the banking ship that we were, our commander ordered seven of us to take the cutter on an exploratory mission to the interior of the Amazon in search of any sign of El Dorado, the lost city of gold. Our Tuni native guide took us to the mouth of the Araguari River, where the great tidal bore known as the Pororoca was taking place. We waited in our cutter, seven men we at the mouth of the Atlantic Ocean and would return to this spot much lighter. At first, the Pororoca swell seemed like nothing, but in an instant, the massive wave appeared, making for us like a stampede of bulls. I had never seen such a thing before, nor since. It came at us with such force that even we as trained sailors were nary prepared for the crash against our hull as we were swept deep into the river by an unholy hand. Up, up, up the river it pushed us, for a good five minutes, until we could no longer see the ocean. That's when one of our own, Johann Brodick, fell overboard and into the river. I had barely reached my hand out to help him, grazing his fingertips, when the water suddenly became agitated and a great school of fish approached. Piranha, piranha, our native guide began to shout, but by then they had reached poor Johann, who had let out a blood-curdling scream as the water ran red. Our cabin boy Arthur stood ready with an oar to fight for Johann, but it nearly tipped our boat. He crouched back down to steady the rocking cutter as we all looked on in horror as Johann was pulled under. When he came up again, fighting for his life, his face shredded and torn to such a degree, I feared that his one eye might fall from his very skull. In an instant, he was gone again, and we saw no more of him. After that, we dared not try to turn around, for fear we too might capsize and meet the same dreadful fate. We carried on in silence as the tide forced us further into the jungle, further into hell. 
quite by accident, we stumbled upon unfriendly natives, some with lip plates the size of pub mats and the markings of warriors. They began shooting spears at us and blowing darts from the riverbanks. We ducked to miss them, and only one man, John Jones, was hit. He quickly removed the dart, thank goodness. Only then did our guide tell us that this tribe was known to his people as cannibals who ate their enemies. He encouraged us to find another arm of the river to return, and we were only so willing to oblige. Finally, when the river was so low we could step out onto the banks, we moored the cutter and set up camp for the night. The jungle was naturally dark under the heavy canopy of trees, but when the sun went down, it became so pitch black that we built a fire more for light than anything. But ours was not the only light in the jungle that night. Another man, Douglas, spotted a glowing orb far off into the jungle. A wills of the wisp, he called it. As it turned out, the poison that had earlier pierced John Jones was starting to take its toll. He began to hallucinate, claiming he saw a woman holding a lantern in the jungle. I used my jackknife to try and bleed out any remaining poison from Jonesy's arm, but it seemed as if it had already hit his system. So we all went to bed and took turns watching over him. Douglas awoke me in the dead of night when he spotted Jones walking into the forest. I got up as quickly as I could, but the jungle was just too dense. In the end, our party never found the ancient temple, no lost city of gold, nor Jones's body. We had had enough, and insisted our Tupian guide return us post-haste. True to his word, he took us to an adjoining stream so we were able to avoid the angry tribe from before. We were unaware that perhaps the greatest danger of all lie ahead. Our guide took us down the alternate route of the river that served as a watering hole for fauna such as ocelots, capybaras, tapirs, okapi. The water along this stretch of the river was calm and bucolic. Toucans and monkeys sang as we felt the sun on our faces for the first time in two days. Our guide assured us there were no piranhas in this part of the river, and so, with the sun now blazing down upon us, we decided to go for a swim. The water was cool and inviting. There was no trace of man-eating fish, cannibal tribes, or the strong tidal bore at all. Rather, the water was like glass, a much-needed reprieve from the horrors we had witnessed just the day before. There we floated amongst fallen logs as a gentle current lulled us in the direction of our awaiting ship. As we floated along, so too did the logs float along with us. But as they floated closer, we realized they were not fallen timber at all. Barbarez, the Spaniard among us, began shouting, Cocoria! Cocoria! No one understood him until the eyes of the black came and alligator appeared. Each man hurried to save his own neck. I to the shore, Douglas and the others to the cutter. Our Tupian guide ran up a tree. Arthur, the youngest among us, was halfway into the cutter when the thing attacked. He grabbed the boy's foot and dragged him into the water. A fight was put up by Arthur, but not for long. We all stood watching, screaming and yelling. Douglas pulled out a pistol and shot the creature. Then a second pistol. He fired again. Finally, he threw a knife. The monster's belly was riddled with holes. Poor Arthur crawled to the shore where I ran to him. I tried to save the boy, but he was losing so much blood so quickly. He died there in my arms. We placed Arthur back in the cutter and rode back to the USS Macedonian in near silence. Arthur was given a proper burial at sea, but Captain Downs refused to pay the boy's mother as Arthur didn't complete his mission. I haven't told anyone this story, nor will I ever have the strength to let these words cross my lips again. However, if I don't express what happened, I think I'll go mad. 
hence this letter. Thank you for allowing me to express myself, dear sweet brother Edgar. Please come visit in Baltimore when you are able. Yours affectionately, Henry. Evermore Poe is the historical account of a teenaged Edgar Allan Poe. If you'd like to learn more about Eddie's devolution to become the master of the macabre, please don't forget to follow and share this podcast. Evermore Poe was researched, written, produced, and edited by yours truly, journalist Chris Kosach. I began my research more than a decade ago using vetted journalistic methods with corroborated fact-checking from respected sources including the Library of Congress, periodicals obtained from multiple Poe museums, notable scholars, and the National Archives, among other collections, strung together in a narrative style. In other words, my story is mostly true. Our music today is from Esther Abrami. It should be noted that some of the characters in Evermore Poe are composites of real people, including servants and slaves who lived in the Allen home at the time of our story. Please note, while Evermore Poe is based on fact, it should not be confused with the historic record. For that, I hope you will go down your own rabbit hole to research one of the most thrilling American authors of all time. Our story continues again next time on Evermore Poe. Until then, I'm Chris Kosach. Thank you for listening.